Welcome to the Rennie Podcast. This is a podcast about everything real estate for the real estate interested. My name is Peter Edmonds and I'm a member of the team here at Rennie. We're a real estate company of about 300 people advising buyers and sellers from first-time condo purchasers to large-scale developers to make smart and informed real estate decisions. We created this podcast as a really concise and consumable way to share our passion for homes, housing, community, and cities. We hope this will spark the same curiosity in you that we have for everything real estate. And all of the documents and links mentioned in this podcast are available at rennie.com. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what's age got to do with it. Andy Ramlow, the resident demographer at Rennie, is our guest for this episode. And our discussion breaks down the question of what's age got to do with it into three key insights. The first one is that housing needs change as people age. On the second insight, we're going to talk about the transfer of intergenerational wealth and its effect on product and pricing. And then the third insight outlines how our aging population requires immigration in order to keep Canada's economy strong. So, Andy, welcome to the Rennie Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Peter. So, Andy, tell us uh, tell us what you do here at Rennie. Basically, I help people inside and outside any organization understand the people aspect of things. And that's with regards to things like community building, housing, or within this particular context, real estate. Just for our listeners, could you explain what demography is? Well, demography is the study of people. And for most demographers, it, uh, one of the, the fundamentals that we look at is age. And uh, relative to that age, things like life cycle patterns and everything from consumer spending to buying a house. Got it. This is a pretty niche little field here. <laughs> How did you get into this? I actually fell into this when I was doing my undergrad in urban and economic geography. And at that time, I started to look at, at things like housing and the housing market. And I came to this sort of epiphany or realization that uh, housing demand within a particular region, well, you don't need people to move there to see housing demand grow. Um, I had just moved from Ottawa to Vancouver and had added to the population here and there was a whole bunch of people that I knew as well who had grown up here who were trying to get into the housing market as well and uh, sort of had that realization that you don't communities can change just by virtue of the aging of its existing population and that became my focus for through my undergrad but then also through all of my grad studies as well and so you know we came up with this title of uh, what's age got to do with it so Tell me about how we're narrowing down on age as one of the most influential factors in real estate. Well, if we simply look at, uh, from a statistical side of things, what somebody would call uh, the life cycle of maintaining a home, uh, you can start off on the early side of things. And traditionally, people under the age of uh, of 25 predominantly live with their parents or with other individuals. And as we move from that uh, that young stage of the life cycle into early family as well as labor or education formation stage of the life cycle, um, the prominence of us owning or renting our own household increases very significantly as well. And uh, if we look back to the 1980s, uh, housing markets in Canada expanded really, really rapidly during that point. And this is the point at which that uh, post-World War II boom generation started to leave mom and dad's household. That generation is now between the ages of 55 and 74 and entering into a much different stage in the life cycle. They've come through family rearing where the uh, household formation rates are relatively stable uh, and into the older stage of the life cycle where they're going to start to be able to uh, to potentially contemplate downsizing mm-hmm. um, and especially at that leading edge of that post-world war ii boom at uh, at the age of 75. 
so let's dig down into this. So we've got we've we've boiled this this episode as we do for, for most of ours into some key insights. And the first insight is housing needs change as people age. Tell me exactly what what that's all about. Well, if we look at that early stage of the life cycle, as I alluded to, only about 16% of the people under the age of 25 are what, on the statistical side of things, we call primary household maintainers. And that's just being responsible for the finances of that household. But as we look to sort of the next stage of life, uh, you look a decade later or 10 years later, and that rate is is almost doubled. Uh, so much more people moving out of the family home or uh, moving out of living as a whole bunch of students in a basement or renting a house. So that's one of the largest life cycle changes is through that younger stage of the life cycle as people get out or undouble, get out of mom and dad's house or undouble from uh, living with a whole bunch of individuals. Uh, and a lot of this is associated with uh, starting to contemplate starting a family. Gotcha. So let's start then. So I guess the housing life cycle from an age of person perspective yep. is the point at which they begin to participate from outside of their parents' home, Check. right? So this is yep. resi- uh, uh, renting as a student or as a, a worker entering the workforce out of, out of uh, uh, straight out of high school. Correct. Um, and so, so that's the point at which it starts. So what does that stage look like in terms of uh, housing use? In terms of housing use, that younger stage of life, predominantly rental. Um, not a lot of ind- fewer individuals move directly into the ownership side of things, uh, and then also predominantly apartments. Mm-hmm. Uh, we look to somewhere like the city of Vancouver, and there's is that sort of older traditional uh, basement suite uh, rental side of things as well, which uh, is is a really important housing entry stage um, to life uh, or to the housing life cycle. One of the interesting things about that younger stage, though, is, as I said, it's sort of being pushed off. And as that stage of of housing entry is being pushed off, what we've seen is a growing prominence of people in their 20s and even early 30s staying in the parental home. So the last census showed that about 10% of the 30 to 39 year olds were still at home, 25 to 29 year olds, about a quarter of them. And then the 20 to 24 year olds, about 60% of them at home. So, and and those, that's a a 30 year trend of those rates increasing over time. What's the trigger then to, to push people into the, into the housing market or, or, or push them out of their parents' home, whether it's into more rental or, or ownership? Well, I'd say that the parents generally are the ones pushing them out. But uh, um, it, certainly one of the, the big things that we see is is contemplating starting a family. And, and so that transition in, into that sort of the family formation stage, you certainly do see families being brought up in apartments or started in apartments. Um, but given the prominence of smaller condos as well, um, it's contemplating getting a little bit more space for the little ones is uh, is the big driver to some of those those changes in terms of uh, not just being a household maintainer but maybe a transition from a condo to something like a townhouse or change in geography and 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 so can you, you you said household maintainer a few times and just, yep. if you could just clarify what that is if you could define household maintainer for me yeah the uh, household maintainer is, is basically the person on the census form that indicates that they're primarily responsible for the finances of the household gotcha what are some of the other changes that occur when people uh, get to a different life stage and then seek out different product? 
Well, through the family rearing stage of the life cycle, certainly we contemplate uh, uh, different needs in terms of housing. And, and as I said, so some of that may be space related. Uh, and uh, it, it may be great to bring one kid up in a condo, uh, two, you may be seeking a little bit of uh, green grass for the Mr. Turtle Pool, uh, so you can look out the back window. Uh, and then certainly when you're contemplating three, while it, uh, I have heard of people certainly doing it and being very comfortable you may be seeking a little bit more space and generally in the lower mainland market here what that necessitates is uh, is moving a little bit further afield uh, and looking to the detached or the townhouse market uh, in uh, outside of the downtown core potentially outside of the city of vancouver as well got it got it so um there's a stage at which family formation begins whether it's coupling and some dogs, which uh, I'm part of that movement, um, or uh, or uh, you know having a family and 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 raising kids, and then how long does that go on for? And then what's the trigger for change on the other side of that? What what does it just sort of keep going? Uh, you know what, what what's the next stage that that's a trigger for change? Well, yeah, it depends on, on what you're looking at in terms of what that trigger of change is. And the, the next stage is, is traditionally the empty nester stage of the life cycle. And the interesting one about that change from a housing side of things is that there's not a lot of change. Uh, and what I mean by that is back to the household maintainer rates, they, they remain high and relatively constant through the older stages of the life cycle. It's not up until the age of about 85 that we see those rates start to fall. And that's the point at life where somebody either goes towards collective and institutional, so they're mm -hmm. no longer primary household maintainers. Like going into a home, is that what that is? Senior's home, yeah. Okay. Uh, or moving in with their kids that sandwich generation as well. So, but if we look at that, even where the post-World War II boom is right now, between the ages of 55 and 75, their propensity to be household maintainers is relatively high. Mm -hmm. uh, what we also see is the through that older stage of the life cycle, while there's this notion that uh, the empty nester stage of the life cycle is going to result in a whole bunch of people downsizing, um, for every year after the age of about 35, your, your likelihood of moving in in a year actually declines. Mm -hmm. The last census said that even for the 75 plus population, 81% uh, of people in British Columbia said they were still living in the same dwelling unit. So it, there is this prominence of staying in your own home. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that I, I think that uh, that is the next life stage in terms of the empty nester stage of the life cycle. And what we see, at least in terms of the current statistics, is a lot of those nests are the nests that that, that, that couple or, or that family had brought their kids up in. It's just the kids have moved away mm -hmm. and uh, the mom and dad are still uh, are still in the same nest. Got it. And, and we are seeing some downsizing happening though, right? So what are some of the things behind that? And they're, they're, you know, the downsizer is almost still based on the stats. Uh, a pioneer is that would you say oh yeah most definitely the stats say that there are people who downsize but it's certainly not uh, the the bulk of people one of the things i think that has had an implication there as well in terms of not downsizing is just purely availability of stuff to downsize in too i know with respect to my parents they lived in in our single detached house for as three empty bedrooms for a long, long time. It wasn't the bricks and mortar that my mom and dad were necessarily tied to. It was a community. Mm 
mm-hmm. and without any option to downsize out of the five bedroom house that they raised their kids, all their kids in, um, they weren't going to downsize. Got it. So availability is one thing. And we, if we look within the lower mainland market here, we look to some of the older communities and, and we are starting to see that change. We're mm-hmm. seeing a greater diversity of housing being added within a lot of the communities. So at least from an opportunity perspective, there may be something available for that, uh, that generation to downsize into. Got it. So despite that 30 year trend of boomers staying and not doing the downsize, um, the older generations eventually will age out of their home that they're currently in. Is that right? Eventually they will. Yeah. Uh, with the tail end or the big bulk of the post-World War II boom being 55 today, mm-hmm. uh, it's easily expected that, that they will be in their homes for the next three decades. So it, it certainly is, is a long way off with regard to that, that big bulk of people hitting that particular stage of the life cycle. Mm-hmm. We had a great chat when we were preparing for this podcast, and you made a comment about life expectancy for male and females being a factor in uh, boomers staying in their homes. Can you expound on that a little bit? Yeah, we have seen increasing life expectancy as being a dr- one of the drivers to the ability of people being able to stay in their houses for a little bit longer before they transition into a senior's home or anything like that. But one of the other really, really interesting ones is, yeah, as you said, the declining gap between male and female life expectancies. And this is driven by males seeing a little bit more rapid increase in life expectancy than what females have seen and a decline in the gap. And over the longer term, what we're postulating here is that it is that ability of that elderly couple to stay together for longer because of the declining gap in life expectancies that is potentially going to have an impact on their ability to stay uh, in their detached home or in their traditional homes for longer periods of time. So essentially clogging up that, uh, that single detached or that family style of housing for longer periods of time. Andy, you, you said, you know, we, we talk about family formation, we talk about, um, uh, you know, boomers staying longer in their, their original homes where they did indeed form their own families. Um, but there's something happening in terms of boomers helping with family formation and that and that housing transition. And I think that brings us to the second insight that we're going to talk about. Yeah, and that's, that's really this notion of uh, intergenerational wealth transfer. And historically or traditionally, that wealth transfer has, co- has come uh, as a result of death in the family and, uh, and uh, that money being, being passed on to, to the younger generation. And certainly what, uh, what we're seeing right now is that uh, that that transfer of wealth isn't necessarily happening at, at the point of death. It, it's happening while people are still living. And in part, that's reflecting in, in the housing side of things uh, with uh, mom and dad saying, you know what, you're in your mid thirties. It's time for you to get out of the house. And you know what? We really want to help you out. So there so is it's like a bribe to kick them out. Kind you know, of thing. it exactly is. Uh, but the, Interesting thing here is that there's some really significant implications on the housing pricing side that the market isn't really realizing. Usually when we talk about prices and what some of the drivers to prices are, everybody throws their arms up in there and says, oh, it's a result of foreign investment and and foreigners. And the reality is things like interest rates need to be considered, but then this intergenerational transfer of wealth. You take the example of uh, of a young couple, first-time home buyers getting into, let's say, the Vancouver condo market here, uh, lower mainland condo market going out, and with 5% down, 
they've scrimped and saved for it. They can afford a $500,000 condo. And mom and dad, because they really, really, really want to make sure that they get out of their mom and dad's basement, uh, plus they want to get buy that pesky CMHC insurance, say, you know what, we're going to up you. We're going to give you $200,000. And that young couple has now the opportunity to go out and significantly reduce their mortgage for that $500,000 condo and reduce their monthly payments. Or they could take the $200,000 and capitalize it right into the purchase price. And rather than $500,000, they're all of a sudden into a $700,000 price point. Now, they've already qualified for a to buy the $500,000 place as a result of of what their incomes are mm-hmm. and what their down payment is. Mm-hmm. And now that mom and dad have contributed that 200000 to get them up to $700,000 purchase price, the irony is that that $700,000 purchase price bears no relation to what their income and their ability to pay is under these traditional approaches to looking at housing affordability. But that household's payments have not changed. Right. So the intergenerational transfer of wealth is boosting the buying power of the local end user move up buyer 100 percent. and in to put a different lens on that it is a driver to some of the price increases that we've seen in the housing market right so some of the some of this commentary about how wildly divergent the household income is to housing prices and percent of household income to uh that's contributed to housing cost when we look at that everyone says it's foreign buyers and investors but what you're positing here is that it is the intergenerational transfer of wealth that's that's having a big effect on that. It it certainly is. And, you know, these aging couples, they want their kids close to them, don't they? This is a great, great conversation. If you look at the data, the, the data show that there's not a lot of movement physically within that older population. Mm. Uh, but as you state, yes, mom and dad, they want their kids to be close to them. So I think that uh, in going forward, if we do, if I look to anything to try and influence or to shift those historical patterns or the strength of those historical patterns, it is what you're bringing up. And that's the desire for the post-World War II boom to have their kids close to them. They do have the ability to transfer some wealth and get them into the market. Uh, Some of them do, some of them may not. But what they also have the ability to do is to change their housing preference as well. And that older generation can say, all right, well, you know what, in addition to maybe transferring a little bit of wealth over there, um, do we really need three empty bedrooms. Uh, And there are now some increasing opportunities for us to move within the community, again, being back tied to the community, maybe not the bricks and mortar of the house, uh, and uh, then being able to make that choice uh, in terms of downsizing into something smaller within their local communities. So I think this is a a trend that it will certainly move forward and uh, help shape not just the housing patterns for that older generation, but definitely also for the younger generation as they get into the housing market as well. So we've, we've I mean, we, there's a projection here that we could say that this, this, this aging out, this transfer of intergenerational wealth will create new housing types and more density. Like if you were a betting man based on all the data you see, um, do you think that's where things are going to go? I think that's where things have to go. There's no other possibility. Because uh, the we're bound po- by the mountains and the sea? Or- and the border as well, yeah. yeah. Um, we, we don't have a lot of opportunity. We can't create the land, yeah. so we have to use what we have. And if what we're postulating comes to fruition, i.e. mom and dad are willing to transfer some wealth for the kids, uh, as well as potentially transfer the house, um, that's logically what would and could happen. The linchpin in all of that, though, Peter, is planning and zoning. Uh, 
if mom and dad are willing to move out of the house uh, and uh, we don't allow that area or some of those lots to densify, well, you know, all we're really doing is opening that whatever $3 million West Side house up to somebody who can afford that $3 million West Side house. Uh, and from a, a, an affordability and or an availability side of things, the planning has to come alongside that as well and allow some of those communities to further densify. So over the next 30 years, I mean, as these folks age out of their home, uh, there will be inevitably more density added, which doesn't just help people who can participate in that transfer intergenerational wealth, but it also creates uh, more space uh, on that lot in that area for all kinds of housing from rental to uh, affordable to subsidized to, um, you know, townhome. It's some of that larger ground oriented uh, uh, product and not just service and facilitate the transfer of that $3 million single family home to someone who can afford it based on their own economic fundamentals. Yep. You got it. Mm. So it's structure type, it's mm -hmm. price point. It's also demographics and it allows right. those communities to survive uh, in terms of the, the natural flow of people in and out of those communities and there to be kids and for the community centers and the schools to stay open and stay full uh, and to support local businesses as well. Right. And, you know, just as everyone gets older every year, there's another maximum of, uh, of demography, right? And this is the one you're going to have to explain it quite carefully for, for me again and everyone else. And, and what's that What's that other thing that you you're, you and your people say? <laughs> me and my peeps? Yeah. yeah. Well, the two fundamentals of demography are, are the first one, as you said, just about everybody gets older every year. It's just about because some people die. And the other one kind of tongue in cheek is he can't be born a 10 year old. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that and why it's important from a demographic perspective is that uh, in addition to everybody getting older, the only way that you can add people to the system who aren't zero year olds or born in a particular year is through mobility and migration. Right. So what you're saying is, is when you look at uh, the demographics from age zero to uh, 85. Um, you can't fill in the blanks You're by right. having people being born as a 25 year old tech worker or a 35 year old uh, nurse practitioner. Exactly. And that's the best example in terms of characterizing this and, and to, to more broadly consider what some of the implications are from a labor force perspective. Uh, if you're dealing with a short term labor constraint, well, looking at things like fertility rates aren't really all that relevant because it's going to take somebody well, in a current context, probably 25 years to get into the labor force and be active. Okay, so that brings us back to our third insight, which is... Ah, uh, yes. Our aging population requires immigration, uh, and in large part, that immigration is, to, is going to be required to support continued economic growth in Canada. Understood. So, you know, we talked about that, the, the filling in the blanks in the, in the demographics. Where are some of the biggest blanks that need to be filled in? Well, from Canada's demography perspective, again, I don't always want to talk about that post-World War II boom, but being 55 to 75, the other life cycle pattern or the other life cycle stage that they're entering is retirement. And so the biggest blank that needs to be filled in here is on the labor force side of things. And as that post-World War II boom retires, we need to fill them in. Uh, and 
we domestically have a fertility rate of only about 1.6 kids per woman. Um, so we're not doing it on our own. And this is where immigration uh, plays a very, very large role in trying to supplement that aging of the post-World War II boom into those retirement stages of the life cycle. Just to fill the seats in their offices? No, to continue economic activity. And, and this is where it becomes really, really important. So it, it's... It, Economic growth is important in and of itself, but in a Canadian context, it's also important to support the range of social services that we have. And this can range from the Canada Pension Plan to uh, to our, our healthcare system. Mm-hmm. And specifically the healthcare system, the healthcare system is what we call as a pay-as-you-go system. So it relies on taxes right now to pay for things like people having kids or having knee or hip replacements. So in order to continue that economic activity, we certainly need need the warm bodies to work within the economy uh, we need the economy to grow so that we can pay for these broad range of social services that we have really deemed to be to be part of the Canadian fundamental mm-hmm. there's only two ways an economy can grow it can grow through adding people so if you want a three percent economic growth well and job growth well you need the labor force to grow by three uh, percent the other way that it can grow is by increasing productivity and so we've had a relatively dismal result on our productivity side here in Canada. So we have increasingly relied on immigration. Uh, so going forward, this is in part the reason why the federal government three to four years ago started to reconsider their immigration targets and move them up from that uh, historical norm of about 250,000 uh, to reach what was supposed to be this year, about 350,000 immigrants. Uh, and again, the big driver to that was this notion of a, a really slowly growing labor force in Canada because of our aging population and what the economic implications were and again by extension how our social services would be impacted. So this immigration policy is something that demographers have been saying is needed for a long time haven't they? Oh most definitely and this is something that I wrote about years and years and years ago we called it the perfect storm and uh, uh, it's not something that's new and if there's anything that surprised me it's that uh, it took the government so long to actually update their policy uh, relative to what uh, the demographers and then the economists as well were saying with regard to our demographic challenge because the numbers showed it and it was just such a strong and unstoppable force i would imagine again it's that aging of the canadian population yeah the most typical migrant or immigrant we look at uh, in their early 30s as well. Uh, so again, that's a, a, a from a real estate side of things, the immigration is required. They're coming in predominantly in that 30 to 40 year old age group, and that's predominantly where we see household formation so as time, well. So more time of life buying then. You've got it, and we come full circle to conversations that uh, we had earlier on. Right, Andy. What are the implications of our national immigration strategy on the local housing market? Well, for me, the local housing market is driven by people. So I've got to step back to the population side of things on that. And uh, we should be expecting more population growth in the coming two decades than what we've seen over the past two. So from the real estate side of things, what that means is that there's going to be a lot more folks out there looking for housing. And the bulk of them coming in in that 30 to 40 uh, year age? Yeah, that's on, on the immigration side of mm-hmm. things. We also have to recognize that there's going to be the smart kids in Toronto that are going to move west, uh, and uh, and they actually tend to be a little bit younger. Mm-hmm. The immigrants tra- are traditionally a little bit older in that uh, early to mid-30s, uh, whereas the interprovincial and intra-provincial people moving within the province, um, migrants tend to be in their early, tw- early to mid-20s. Mm-hmm. 
So this has been fa- a fascinating chat. And I just wanted to recap the, the three insights that we came up with because, you know, we asked the question, what's age got to do with? And, and it turns out, you know, quite a lot and, 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 you know, clustering them t- into three fairly compelling insights. I really thank you for that, Andy. So um, the first one was housing needs change as people age. Yep. So my insight there is don't expect all the boomers to move out. Um, uh, with regard to a lot of the metropolitan regions, uh, if they don't, um, we're going to be in a continue to be in a situation where availability and affordability is is paramount with regard to uh, to those housing markets. Gotcha. And whether they do or they don't move out, there is insight number two that the transfer of intergenerational wealth has a huge effect on pricing and product. Yeah, most definitely. And and again, given the age range of the post-World War II boom generation, 55 to 74, uh, this isn't something that is, is going away in the short term. It's only going to grow in terms of its prominence. And also growing is population, as you've said. So that brings us to our third insight too, which is our aging population requires immigration in order to keep the economy strong. And the regions that are going to be most impacted by that are Canada's three large metropolitan regions, Vancouver, Toronto, and Montreal. Uh, So again, continued focus of immigration into those three major metropolitan regions. Andy, it's always great to talk to you. You always give me so much to think about and, and so much to tell people about. And and um, you you talk through a number of different figures and facts and so on. And are you going to make this all available on ready.com? I will put up all my charts and graphs for everybody to peruse. Great. So if you go into the uh, into the Rennie blog, uh, you'll be able to sort by podcast category and you'll be able to see Andy's uh, uh, th- this discussion of what's age got to do with it and some corresponding uh, charts and graphs that are spread out before Andy that he used as his notes, actually, <laughs> which is a very Andy thing to do. And uh, you'll be able to see them there. And then also we'll be uh, recording some of Andy's appearances and his presentations uh, through the rest of the year and in the years to come as well and making those available to you. Andy, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Peter. It is always great chatting with you. You betcha. The Rennie Podcast is a Rennie production. It's recorded on the unceded territories of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. I'm Peter Edmonds. Thanks for listening. <laughs>